Psalm 116. And as I said this uh, afternoon, it's a psalm of thanksgiving for deliverance from death. Psalm 116 is a messianic psalm. It's one of the Passover psalms. Psalm 113 through 118 are the Passover psalms. And this psalm was most likely recited by Jesus on the night that he was arrested, the night that he celebrated the Passover with his disciples. The outline of the psalm, the outline of the psalm goes like this. Number one, a declaration of the psalmist's love for the Lord in verses one and two. Second, an experience that he had on the threshold of death, verses three through four. Third, praise for God in verses five through seven. Fourth, the psalmist's deliverance from death in verses 8 through 11. Fifth, a vow to praise the Lord, verses 12 through 14. Sixth, a reflection on the psalmist's deliverance, verses 15 through 17. And lastly, payment of his vow to praise the Lord, verses 18 and 19. The theme of the psalm is praise for being saved from certain death. Worship is a grateful response and not a repayment for what God has done. We can't repay God for the things he's done, but we can worship him as a grateful response for the things that he does. The author, again, anonymous. We don't know who he is. And it seems like the psalmist is talking about an experience that he had, a time where he thought that he was surely going to die. In his own mind, as far as he was concerned, his time on earth was over, and he figured this was it. And he's not going to get well, and he's going to move on into eternity. But he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord healed him, or the Lord raised him up. So the psalm is based on a man thinking that he was going to die. This is a psalm to read when you think about death. And it starts off with the psalmist telling about his love for God. In verse 1, he says, I love the Lord. How about us? How about you tonight? Do you really love the Lord Jesus? How often do you tell him that you love him? Do you love his person? Do you love who he is, his attributes? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Do you communicate with him? Do you talk to him? Have you talked to him today? Is he necessary to you? Is he real to you? Is he first and foremost in your life? And you see, that's like any relationship. You know, I, I, I liken it to a marriage relationship. If there's no communication, and if you don't talk to one another, and, and that person isn't first and foremost in your life, and you know, next to God, and, and you know, and you don't tell that person that you love them, and, and you show them that you love them through your acts and your behavior and your words, I, I really don't know that that's much of a relationship. The Bible says in 1 John four nineteen, we love him because he first loved us. We also read in 1 Peter 1, 8, whom having not seen, you love. Though, how you, though, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Psalm 20, uh, John 21, 15 through 17, the Lord asked Simon Peter, Peter, do you love me? Revelation 1 5 it says to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood And then in Revelation 3 9 to the church in Philadelphia The Lord said I will make them to know that I have loved you 
And the Church of Philadelphia in the book of Revelation represents the Bible-believing church today. Now, what's the basis for all of this love that's pouring out of the psalmist's mouth and heart? In verse 1, he says, I love the Lord. Notice why? Because he has heard my voice. He's saying, I love the Lord because you know what? He heard my prayers for mercy. And this means that, he, that, that, that when the psalmist prayed or called on God, that God heard him. He says, because God inclined his ear to me. And these words, he inclined his ear to me. These words speak of the love of God. God bends from his place of glory to meet the needs of his people. The word to incline one's ear is to pay attention and, and, and to concentrate on what's being said. Only a God as great as Jehovah God can hear the voices of millions of his children. Can you imagine who are praying to him at the same time? I, you know, I thought about that. I go, man, I, yeah, it's hard for me to pay attention to one person, much less you know, God paying attention to, to millions and millions of people praying to him at the same time. God is so responsive that you can always reach him. I thank God I don't have to call and make an appointment. I thank God I don't have to pick a number or wait in line. That he's open to me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whenever I need him. And he bends down and he listens to your voice. The psalmist's love of the Lord had grown because he had this experience, this answer to his prayer. You know, if you're discouraged, remember that God is always close by. And remember, he listens carefully and compassionately to every prayer, every word, regardless of how small you think it is or how great it, it is. There's nothing too small or too big that God can't take care of. And that he answers every one of you in order to give you his best. And the psalmist says, and because he heard him, he says, I will call upon him. I will call upon his name. Verse 2 says, as long as I live. And the name of the Lord, and I told you from the very beginning when we went through the Psalms, I don't know if you still remember, you're still doing it, to underline every time you see the word name, speaking of his name. He says in verse 2, I will call upon him, or I think it's verse 4, but I will call upon him, that is his name, as long as I live. And the name of the Lord represents everything that God is. It represents everything that God does. And to call on his name is to trust him to work on your behalf. We see the words, I called and I will called, used all through the psalm. Verse 2, verse 4, verse 13, and verse 17. And they teach us that God cares for those who are helpless. And that God hears their prayers. And that he saves them when they can't save themselves. And you know what? God delivers individuals. Therefore, we should praise him. We read, I, me, or my. They're found every, in every verse in this psalm except for verse 5, 15, and 19. The word I is found 18 times. The word my is found 11 times. And the word me is found 5 times. Let's look at verses 1 through 11 now of Psalm 116. And the psalmist says, I love the Lord, notice, because he has heard my voice and my supplications, and because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me, 
and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then, notice, then I called upon the name of the Lord, everything that the Lord is. Oh, Lord, I implore you or I entreat you, pray to you, deliver my soul. Verse 5, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. Verses 1 through 11 11 generally tell us what God did for the psalmist here. God delivered him from from near death. Look at verse 3. The pains of death surrounded me and the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. Look at verse 6. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Verse 8. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears. And then verse 10. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. The pains of death that he's talking about here, it describes the psalmist's stressful experience of suffering that brought him to what he thought was the edge of death. And these words point prophetically to the Savior's suffering and his torment on the cross. And in verse 3 here, the Hebrew, the Hebrew word uh, Sheol meant the grave. And there's you know, a lot of confusion you know, by people on what Sheol means and Hades and hell and, and how this is break, broke, uh, broken down. So I'm going to try to explain it as, as easily and clearly as I can. In verse 3, the Hebrew word Sheol meant the grave. All right, it meant the grave. It's where everybody who died was buried. Everybody before Jesus resurrected from the grave went to Sheol. All right, everybody who died was buried in Sheol. The grave was the idea of Sheol. It isn't really the place of torment and suffering for the wicked that have died. It can mean that though, but it actually meant the grave. It's where people went before Jesus resurrected when they died. Before Jesus died, everybody who died went into Sheol, which was the place of the departed dead or the souls of the dead. And at that time, Sheol or Hades or hell was divided into two compartments. We see that Jesus speaks about in that in Luke 16. Remember those two compartments and there was a gulf between them. The rich man that died uh, went to, to, to the, the, the one side of that great gulf that was fixed. And then the, 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 the poor man who died, he went there into Abraham's bosom. Okay, that was Sheol. Now, one part was a place of, of torment. The other one was, he was being, uh, uh, is a place of comfort uh, called Abraham's bosom. So again, that rich man, again, the story about Lazarus and, rich, uh, and the rich man were in Luke 16. Again, the rich man that feasted every day went to, he died and he went to Hades or Sheol or hell. The poor man who laid at the gate, who was full of sores and kept alive, was kept alive by the crumbs that, that fell off the master's table, he also died, but he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom, you could say, was the opposite place from where the rich man was. Because again, remember, there was that great gulf fix between the two places. And in Hades, remember, the rich man lifted up his eyes. And he was in torment. 
And he saw Abraham off in the distance on the other side. And Lazarus was there being comforted. So in the Old Testament, the saints who died, though they were saints, went into Sheol, which again was the place of the departed. All right? The grave where they were waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise. Now, they weren't in torment. They were in waiting for the promise of Christ and the resurrection, his atonement. The purpose of the coming of Jesus Christ was to set them free, those that were bound. And Jesus would open up the prison doors. So when Jesus died, he descended into hell, according to Acts chapter 2 and Peter's message. And then in Peter's letter, he talks about it. And Paul also speaks about it in Ephesians chapter 4. And when Jesus ascended, he led those captives free from that captivity. Prior to Jesus, it was impossible that they could enter into the heavenly scene apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So they spent their time in Sheol, the place of the departed, in Abraham's bosom. The reason is because the blood of bulls and goats could not put away their sins. It could only cover their guilt or their sins, but it couldn't put away their sins. It took the sacrifice, the blood of Jesus Christ, to put away our sins once and for all. So the door to heaven wasn't open to man until Jesus was, had put away our sins by his death on the cross. So now Jesus said after that, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. John eleven twenty five through 26. And then immediately we go into the presence of the Lord. Here they went into Sheol or the, or the place of the departed. Now because of the atonement and resurrection of Christ, we go immediately into the presence of the Lord as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 through 4. He said, we grow weary in these present bodies and we long for the day when we'll put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will not be spirits without bodies, but we will put on new heavenly bodies. Our dying bodies make us groan and sigh, but it's not that we want to die and have no bodies at all. We want to slip into our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by everlasting life. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, Paul said, I want to receive my new heavenly body because I know that as long as I'm living in this body, I am absent from the Lord. He said, I'd rather be absent from this body that I might be present with the Lord. And remember, Jesus said to the thief on the cross the day that he, he, he said, Lord, don't forget me. He said, today you will be with me in paradise immediately when you die. So you see, I will never die. The believer will never die. I will move to a new address. And I thank God for that. I'd hate to think that I was going to live in this body forever as weak as it's getting. Thank God I'm going to move out of this aging, deteriorating tent, as Paul called it in 2 Corinthians 5, this body and moving into a mansion that Jesus is preparing for me. In the Old Testament, again, before the finished work of Christ on the cross, everybody that died went into the grave, that is, into Sheol where they were comforted in Abraham's bosom until the finished work of Christ, who went down and announced to them his victory when he opened the gates of hell and led the captives from their captivity, and now they're with him in glory. So the psalmist here is talking about the grave. And then his deliverance. His deliverance is the subject of the first part of this psalm. And that's all that the psalmist focuses on. 
But it also comes up in the second part as well, because in verse 16, he says of the Lord, you have loosed my bonds or my chains. What, the, what, was, what was the psalmist's affliction? What was he suffering from? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But based on what we read, he was probably very sick and to the point of dying, and the Lord delivered him. In listening to the psalmist's prayer, we can hear the prayer covers the past, the present, and the future. God heard his prayer. So remember, he hears, and he will hear. God delivered him. So he delivers, and he will deliver. So we can count on the Lord because, you see, the Lord never changes, thank God. I never have to worry about him changing. I never have to worry about him changing his mind or his opinion about me. Everything in love, involved with man, on the other hand, it changes. He's so fickle. One minute he thinks this, the minute, next minute he thinks, he changes with the wind. But not God. Not our God. And because of that, we can count on him to do today and tomorrow what he did in the past. What God has done in the past for his saints of old is a guarantee for, for the future. Because as Hebrews 13, 8 says, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God is immutable. He's unchangeable. So being a Christian and living by faith in Jesus Christ, we can pray with assurance knowing that God hears and answers prayer. Let's look at verses 10 and 11 now. The psalmist said, I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. Now the psalmist got the victory, but it wasn't without a fight. A better translation of verse 10 is this. I kept my faith even when I said I am greatly afflicted or I clung to my faith even when I said I am sorely afflicted. Now, this was how bad the psalmist's distress was. It caused him to cry out in alarm rather than haste. All right? and, And he cried out in alarm rather than haste. He said, all men are liars. Or in the New Living Translation, it reads like this. I believed in you, so I said, I am deeply troubled, Lord. In my anxiety, I cried out to you. These people are all liars. This was his confidence. Even though he was greatly afflicted and and he felt that he had been deceived by all who seems uh, had said he wouldn't be delivered. Faced with certain death, he knew that God was was trustworthy. So he cried out to him. And the psalmist wasn't being gloomy or sarcastic here. He knows the hopeless condition that he was in. He knew the total unreliability of of man, of human beings. And it was because he had come to believe in God that he could see his own condition and man's unreliability. Now here's some conclusions that we can draw from the psalmist's experience that we've read in these verses. The experience of having been sick And having prayed and having God answer him so clearly and so powerfully, it left such an impression on him that he spent some time thinking. And his thoughts are scattered all through, and not just the first part of the psalm, but the second part as well. Now, the things that we can can draw from the psalmist's experience here, they're not in any kind of logical order. They just kind of jump out at you. They kind of skip around, but you can't miss them. 
For example, we can learn from the psalmist's experience that the Lord is gracious and righteous and merciful according to verse 5. Look at verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. Have you ever experienced the grace and the compassion of God in your life? I mean, if you're a Christian, you have. And I can recall, man, when I wasn't a Christian, how I look back and I experienced His grace and His compassion way more than one time. You know, it's a miracle that I'm even alive today. Then never think about it. You know, don't, don't, I mean, if you never think about it, I mean, you need to go back and, and look over your life. Again, and if you do, you'll, you'll get blown away about how, how good God really is. Almost every one of the Psalms in this last book of the Psalms does that. It tells us about how God good is. If you're a Christian, you should be blown away by what God has done in the past. How gracious He is and how compassionate. The second thing that we can learn from the psalmist's experience, according to verse 6, is that the Lord preserves the simple. Look at verse 6. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and He saved me. Now, in this context, the word simple means innocent, clean, or untarnished. In the Proverbs, it usually means naive or untested. God isn't just gracious. He's also gracious to the little person, to the little people, to the plain people, to the common people, to the nobodies in life, to the everyday or ordinary person on the bus or in the market or wherever they may be. People just like the psalmist. And the psalmist said in one, uh, Psalm 115, one, uh, verse 13, he said, He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. Both small and great. That's just one of the amazing things about our God. When Jesus called his disciples, he called, he called them from all different walks of life. Just like he's called every one of us. He called fishermen. He called tax collectors, simple, everyday people. When the angels announced Christ's birth, it was announced to shepherds out in the field. He didn't go to the city. The, the, you know, the angels didn't go to the city and, and, and announce it to all the, 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 the top political leaders of government. He announced it to the simple folks, the shepherds out in the field. One of the most wonderful things about the gospel is that God made it known to me. The small, the simple, the nobody. I mean, that should tell us a lot about the grace of God. The third thing that we can learn from the psalmist's experience is, he said, let my soul be at rest again in verse 7. He's saying, now I can let my soul return to its rest because of these things that he learned about his God. The psalmist came to the conclusion that he could rest again in God. But even more securely now, with greater trust than he had before. The psalmist was truly a believer before. But the trouble that he was in, this suffering, the sickness that he had, it turned his soul, you know, it had turned his soul into a ball of confusion. But as a believer, he turned to God. And God answered him in a wonderful way. Now he's able to settle down and he's able to rest in the Lord once again. Shouldn't your answers to prayer help you do the same? Every time God touches our life, it should make us stronger and it should cause us to rest a little bit easier. 
learn that you can continue to put all your trust in him. The fourth thing that we can gather from the psalmist's experience, he said in verses 8 and 9, notice, you have delivered my soul from death. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. God delivers his people, not only so they appreciate his grace, not only so that they can rest in him, but also that they can live for him and walk for him and follow after him and be a witness to him. In other words, there's work to do. And if God spares his people from death, guess what? It's so that they can be useful to God by doing his work. One commentator said that resting in God is a matter of our confidence in God. Walking before him has to do with our obedience. Further on in the psalm, the psalmist explains what it means to walk before the Lord. Look at verse 16. He says, O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your, ma- of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. Lord, I am truly your servant. I am your servant. These words remind us of Jesus' teaching about discipleship. Jesus called us to be what? Servants. Servants who would follow him as his disciples, even to the call of death, if need be. He said in Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Walking obediently before God really does mean being a servant. We kind of looked at that this morning. Building a house on the rock. It takes effort. It takes denial of self. It takes labor. It's hard. Being a servant of God, it's difficult sometimes. Walking obediently before God, it means being a servant. And as Paul wrote to the believers at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, he says, you are not your own. Why? You were bought at a price. That price, the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, he says, honor God with your body. And yet, while Jesus called us to be servants, Jesus also said this in John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all the things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. Our service is to be an educated service. How do we become educated servants? Through reading the word of God. So that we don't serve him blindly. But we serve him with understanding and we serve him with love. Paul told the the Ephesians in in Ephesians 5, 17. He says, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And if we're going to make sense out of Paul's teaching and out of the psalmist's conclusion in verse 9 here, where he said, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living, we're going to have to study the Bible. Because there's nowhere else that the will of God is made known to us. And above all else, the Bible is an unfolding revelation. It's a progressive revelation as we read every day and God reveals himself to us more and more. He reveals his mind to us. The Bible is the unfolding revelation of the mind of God. It's where we find out what God requires of us. It's where we find out how far short we fall from the glory of God, how short we have fallen from his demands and what God had done in Christ to restore us to himself. And what God demands of us now, Jesus said, we believe in him who he sent. That's what Jesus requires of us. Believe in him whom he sent.
The fifth thing that we can learn from the psalmist, uh, almost near death here, his experience, is verse 15. Notice, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. God is especially close to his people when they are close to death. God stays close to us even in death. When somebody we love is close to death, we might get angry. You know, we might feel abandoned. And of course, why God? Why? Why now? Why this way? But in this verse, that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints, realize that believers are precious to God. It's not an, a random act when somebody that we love or a believer is going to die or dies. Believers are precious to God, and God carefully chooses the time as well as the place and how. He, he chooses the time, I should say, really, when they're going to be called into his presence. He chooses the time when they will be called into his presence. Jesus, teaching his disciples about the fear of God, said to them in Matthew 10, 29, not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father's will. We need to let this truth comfort us when we've lost a loved one. You see, God sees and each, value, each life is valuable to him. Ezekiel 33, 11 says this, As surely as I live, listen to what the Lord says, As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. Turn, turn from your wickedness. Why should you die? So you can see, and, and I read this because you see, even he doesn't even take pleasure in the wicked dying. God watches over his people when they're sick. God watches over his people when they're dying or they're com he comes close to them. He makes his presence known so that they have comfort in that, in that hour of death. God also regularly intervenes and doesn't allow them to perish at times. Either way, the Lord does what's best for us and that's the thing that we really have to consider. And remember, whatever God does is the best for us. Paul spoke about death as a blessing in Philippians 1, 22 through 26. Paul said, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. One thing is for sure. Think of this. You are, God's servants are immortal until your work here is done. Think about that. Now, we can hasten our death, our death by doing something foolish. But we can't go beyond God's appointed time. That's in God's hands. Nobody can stop us. We are immortal until our work here is done. And now in the last half of the psalm, notice what it asks in verses 12 through 19. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. 
precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. He says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? That's a good question. How can we repay the Lord for all his goodness to us? Think of it. Is there something that he needs from me? Do I have something that he needs? No. Paul asks the question in, in Romans eleven thirty five: Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Who could ever give him so much that he'd have to pay it back? Nobody can give God anything. Because we read in Romans eleven thirty six, of him and through him and to him are all things. James tells us in James 1, 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights. Without suggesting that there's any real valuable thing that we have to give God, the psalmist does suggest ways that we can respond to God's goodness to us. For example, we need to tell other people about his mercy to us. In the very last verses, the psalmist speaks of thanking God and calling on him. Again, look at verses 18 and 19. I will pay my vows to the Lord. Notice how he's going to do it. In the presence of all of his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the, in the midst of you, in public, I'm going to tell everybody. He says, I will pay my vows. These words are the concluding words of the psalmist. And he's telling us here his intention to keep his promise to bring his offering of praise to the temple court. What he's saying here is that he means that we should tell the public, we should tell everyone about God's redeeming grace. Also in verse 13, he says, we need to take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Take up the cup is based on the drink offering prescribed in Numbers 28.7. But there's a big difference between the drink offering spoken of in Numbers 28 and what the psalmist is talking about here. Here the psalmist isn't talking about giving God anything. Even though he asks, how can I repay the Lord? Instead, he's talking about taking something, the cup of salvation, whatever God gives me. Closing, in closing, there's, there's, great, there's deep insight here by the psalmist. The only way that we can repay God from whom everything comes from is by taking even more from him. I will take the cup of salvation is right after and connected to and call upon the name of the Lord in verse 17. Because we receive God's gift and then go on in the same relationship forever asking and receiving from him. And the last supper was instituted with the cup of salvation. That cup represented the blood of Christ that was poured out as an atonement for our sins. It speaks of giving all the way, 100%. Salvation comes from the Lord, Jonah 2.9. But it's also a cup that needs to be taken by us, which is what we symbolize by taking it like we did this morning at the Lord's Supper. It's a spiritual cup. And the way it's taken is by faith. 
that is by believing that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God and our Savior. Father, once again, we thank you for this great psalm, Lord. Father, as always, may we learn to apply, God, the things that, Father, you teach us. And Lord, may we do as the psalmist said. Lord, we will pay our vows. God, in the presence of all of his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. God, we will make you known to all of those around us, God. Father, that's what we're called to do. To take the gospel to the whole world, Lord. Father, to see souls saved. To see people come to the salvation of Christ, Lord. And maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you haven't at this time received the cup of salvation. The sacrifice of Christ upon the cross for your sins. For our sins. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you want to receive that blessed, blessed sacrifice. His blood spilled on the cross for your sins. Then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray a simple prayer of faith together.